Hey everybody, it's Justin Shackle welcoming you into episode 8 of Towing the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. The Cy Young Awards were announced last week. Robbie Ray took home the American League Cy Young Award. And David, we had a chance to talk to Robbie here this week. Yes, we did. And he was a very deserving award winner in my mind. I know James Smythe and I talked about it towards the end of the year. And we've sort of said, you know what, uh, no matter how you slice it and dice it, a guy who led the league in innings pitched and runs allowed as ERA was the lowest in the American League. That's a pretty good base to start from if you're trying to win a Cy Young Award. So he's a remarkable character, physically, you know, always been kind of a strong guy on the mound with good stuff, but he took it to the next level through a rededicated workout program in the offseason that really uh, that he got into a little bit with us. So uh, he's an interesting guy. He peaks at the right time. He now he's a free agent. What a time to pick to have your best season. So timing in life is everything. His timing is impeccable right now. I think with, you know, obviously Robbie winning, but also we were talking about the National League Cy Young Award when, uh, you know, that contest as well, Corbin Burns took that award home and it was a lot tighter than the American League race for sure. But we all had our reasons, right? And now the dust has kind of settled. So James, like, what did you, I thought you had awesome insight into what mattered more, like that workhorse mentality of Zach Wheeler or the the dominance in a more compactful workload with, with Corbin Burns. What was your takeaway from the results but also the voting from the NL Cy Young Award. Well, last week I said we might see the Cy Young winner in the National League maybe have fewer first place votes or something like that. It was really close. Burns had 12 first place votes. Wheeler had 12 first place votes. So that was even there. It was a very razor thin 151 to 141 in the points. So I, and when the voting came out, there was a, a bit of a pushback about you know does this mean that the the voting block is is de-emphasizing innings or anything like that I don't think we should be reading too much into it like that because it was such a close vote and if it's it's a 30 person ballot so if if you have 30 different writers maybe something else comes out so you have Wheeler almost win it leading the league in innings and on the American League side Robbie Ray did lead the league in innings and he still won. So I don't think there are too many grand conclusions to make out of it other than Burns and Wheeler. Any way you slice it, both had ridiculously good seasons and were both deserving and it just went to Burns this time. Yeah, I don't know if this is like something that's going to change the way writers think about the vote moving forward. Because David, I know that was like the narrative after the results were shown, like, hey, people are going to, really recognize the the pitcher regardless of their innings I don't think that's the case I think Corbin Burns's work was such a dominant display and in an outlier performance that this may be uh, you know for lack of a better you know not flash in the pan year but like you know Corbin Burns work is going to stand on by itself this season's going to stand on its own I completely agree I mean it's not Corbin Burns's fault that Craig Council and the Milwaukee Brewers wanted to kind of protect him in their rotation a little bit as, as they used a, a modified six-man rotation for the majority of the year. And, and it worked. It kept him fresh. It kept him strong. It also denied him about four or five starts compared to Zach Wheeler, which which is really the difference in, in the uh, overall numbers here in terms of quantity. But 
if you watched closely this year and you saw any of Corbin Burns's really good starts, and there were several of them, he certainly looked the part. I mean, there was nobody more dominant than him. I mean, that cutter is the best pitch in baseball right now. I mean, that's my number one pick. I mean, if we had to, if we had to draft a pitcher, you know, and I keep talking about this sort of idea that I have, and you know, okay, we get to, you get to draft one fastball, you get to draft one slider, you get to draft one curveball and one changeup or splitter. Corbin Burns, the number one pick would be that fastball cutter that he throws. So uh, it was just remarkable to watch him. It was unhittable at times. So I certainly, you know, I, I understand the, the thinking behind it. If you saw Corbin Burns pitch this year, he looked like the Cy Young Award winner. He was that dominant. We still have to iron out those details about the pitch draft, which we're, we're going to do in the month of December as we get yes. closer to to the holiday season because we got to figure out how many rounds we're going to go what kind of snake draft if we you know how many people do we want in this maybe we we get a guest involved who knows maybe it's the three yeah. of us our producer dan maybe we get a a fifth guest we'll we'll, we'll have to really you know, sit down and, and get to work on these details one thing that we didn't talk about last week and kind of previewing the cy young david we didn't ask you where you keep your award ah yeah i gave it to my dad you know, my father, Ed Cohn, was my first pitching coach and my best pitching coach. He taught me the most important lesson I've ever learned in pitching. And if you want a cliche, it's less is more. Throw strikes first. Get the ball over the plate. Get your quality down and attack the strike zone and own the strike zone before you start trying to get nasty or trying to break off your breaking stuff or throw a little harder. So that was that was uh, for Ed Cohn. Ed and Joan Cohn were Great parents growing up. They both were at every one of my games. Mom kept the scorebooks. She was the first sabermetrician, and Ed Cohn was a coach. He was a tough, he was a tough coach, and uh, uh, so I gave him the Cy Young Award, and, and rightly so. He has it at home on display, and there's no nowhere else I, I'd rather have it than with him, with with pops, you know, at home because he was there every step of the way. See, people wonder why David is so well rounded with both ends of pitching. The the analytical portion the r&d version he got from mom and then the hard 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 nose old school approach to pitching he gets from his father so it was a, a blend of mixture in the uh in the 60s and 70s and and all the way into uh you know his, his time in the big leagues absolutely well put i mean that's exactly <laughs> the way it was at home you know it was you know with the royals of the 70s there's a there's a phrase i always remember and the royals had a shortstop named freddie Patek. Uh, was one of the shortest players in the history of the game. I think he was five, six, played shortstop, and he was kind of streaky as a hitter. And uh, he would be 0 for 20, and I would say something to my mom, hey, Freddie Potex 0 for 20, and she'd be somewhere in the other part of the house, and I could hear it to this day. She'd say, well, well, he's due. He's due then. And that was Joan Cohn. That was the, the one who really believed in the law of averages, that he's a good player. Eventually he's going to bust out of it. Don't make it, don't read too much into hot streaks and cold streaks. That was Joan Cohn, and she was ahead of her time. As far as I'm concerned, she may not, may not have understood complex mathematical formulas with that go into sabermetrics, but she over, she understood the overall concept of, of what random variance was, what the luck factor was. She knew it. She knew it and she believed it. And she called it due. He's due or he was due for a hit or you're due for a good game. So she was able to put it into simple related terms. No problem right there. <laughs> yes that that was joan cone dad dad was the old school hey let's go we got to work get in the backyard and uh you know hey he was dad was about work ethic and how bad you want it and uh you know the answer's in the dirt as he said you get outside and, and get down in the dirt and find find your answers <laughs>
It's awesome. Well, before we get to our talk with Robbie Ray, this year's American League Cy Young Award winner, it is, uh, it's time for the opener here. So this is David's portion where he literally opens the show with something that he wants to address, shed some light on. So, David, what do you have for this week's edition of the opener? Well, circumstances dictate right now that uh, we're, we're kind of in a unique uh, a part of the baseball season because the collective bargaining agreement is due to expire on December 1st. So that's going to create a bit of a frenzy, I think. It's an interesting uh, few days to watch. Uh, are there people that are going to sign under the wire? Are there any big deals to be had out there? Any trades to be done before the potential lockout comes? Because if the lockout comes and once it comes, this could really shut the industry down for the majority of the winter. We could have a very quiet winter and it could run all the way into February. So to, to, to me, it's a, uh, well, if you're an agent, you know, whether you're representing Robbie Ray or any of the free agents out there, what do you do? Do you try to get into the wire? Do you try to negotiate quickly and get the best deal you can now? Or do you kind of wait, wait and uh, take your chances later, not knowing what the, uh, the new rules are going to be with regard to, with regards to uh, luxury tax or compensation system or what it's going to look like after this new collective bargaining agreement is, is finally agreed to. You know, there was some activity within this last week. Maybe this is a good time to get some reaction. There, there were four big name, or there were four starting pitchers who, who made some, some deals happen here over this past week. And one of them was, was Robbie Ray's teammate in Toronto. It's interesting because Robbie himself is a free agent, Jose Barrios re-upped long-term in Toronto, and this is a guy that was not a free agent. What was your reaction to Jose Barrios signing a seven-year contract extension with the Blue Jays? You know, for me, and I know James and I have talked about this, that sometimes, even though Toronto is, I don't know if you'd call them a sleeping giant. I mean, they are a major market. They have tremendous resources, but they've had trouble getting free agents to take their money, so to speak, to, to go up to Canada and play for Toronto. It's a great place to play. I certainly can vouch for it. But nonetheless, when you have a pitcher that you traded for, like Jose Barrios, and you've got him there, and you, he's gotten a taste of the young talent that's there, well, you could strike. It was a smart move by Toronto to lock him up. There's, there's no telling where Robbie Ray's market's going to wind up. But here you've got a guy under contractual control. You can sign him right now. We can make this more of a long-term deal. He's in his prime. Kudos to the Blue Jays for recognizing that, for striking while it was hot, and for uh, Jose Barrios. You know what? I like it here. It's a good team. They're going to score a bunch of runs. Uh, there's worse places to be. Uh, he's got uh, a nice long-term contract now to play for a team with a great young nucleus. It's a smart move by him too, as well. Yeah, it was. He must have been very impressed by Toronto because he foregoes free agency and with a seven-year deal. <laughs> It basically buys out his last uh, pre-free agency season then with six tacked on. So that's a, that's a big commitment on both sides, and I think it's going to work out beautifully. Well, let's go in order here in terms of length and dollar amount as well. The next guy on the list, Eduardo Rodriguez, and he signs with the Tigers, a multi-year deal for him. So he leaves the AL East moves over to the AL Central, which is quietly percolating here. A lot of people like to kind of trash on the AL Central the last couple of seasons, but between, you know, the White Sox, obviously, the Tigers seem to be gaining momentum. The Royals, a little bit 
more slow than the Tigers, but they're gaining momentum as well. I'm not going to count out the Twins because it seems like one year they're they're cold, next year they're hot. So it's going to be interesting to see where they fall in all of this. But Eduardo Rodriguez, the Tigers, seems like a pretty good pairing. Yeah, once again, I mean, Detroit is in a position to where they made great strides last year. A.J. Hinch, uh, their manager, did a great job with them. They feel like they're on the right track. So once again, they, they may have trouble getting the top free agents to take their money because uh, there's a lot of major markets out there. You're competing with the Yankees, you're competing with the Red Sox, you're competing with the Dodgers, several other teams that are now in contention that are looking to sign free agent pitching. So if you're the Detroit Tigers, you got a chance to sign somebody, you take it. And they jumped all over that. Eduardo Rodriguez is a quality left-handed starter. Those are premium. Those are at a premium, in my opinion. Yeah, just being left-handed still matters. Since there's not as many of them. So when you've got a quality left-handed starter, well, you, you, you take your chance, you lock them up. And Detroit uh, sends a message to their fan base, sends a message to all their sponsors, sends a message to the team that, hey, we, we're for real. We, we believe in what you did last year. We believe we're on the right track. And here's the proof. And Eduardo Rodriguez was there. They struck. They made the deal. And the timing is everything. Quickly. Do it quickly, Detroit. Uh, don't let him get out there and expand his market. You know, I, I applaud that strategy from the Tigers. It was a smart move to, to, to go early and often with, with Eduardo Rodriguez and lock him up the minute you could. Yeah, 157 innings coming off of the, the missing all of 2020. With, he had a very nasty bout with COVID. Yeah, and metacarditis. He yeah. comes back strong, shows that he's healthy. He made 31 starts. And if you want to talk about a guy who's due, Coney, the 474 ERA, I don't really think that speaks to how quality his season was. His fielding independent pitching, his FIP, which is based, it's on the same scale as ERA, but it's looking just at home runs, strikeouts, and walks, which is really uh, what is considered to be more in the pitcher's control. His FIP was 332. So it's, almost a run and a half lower than his ERA, which suggests that maybe he did have some bad luck uh, pitching in Boston this year. And I think that's going to uh, dip down and have a more, uh, you know, maybe like a sub four ERA in, in Detroit. I think some Tiger fans were also for a two, three day period, they were dreaming big because they have a lot of young talent in that starting rotation to begin with. You have Eduardo Rodriguez kind of there now to, to fill a void at the front of the rotation. But then, hey, a guy named Justin Verlander was on the market as well. Ton of connections, obviously. The nice story of him going back to his original team. His former Astros manager is there in A.J. Hinch. But Verlander will be returning to Houston, a one-year deal. He has an option as well. I know some Yankee fans were, were dreaming of Verlander coming to the Bronx as well, David, but he's in Houston now. He's going to remain an Astro. He's going to remain that villainous figure in the eyes of Yankee fans. What did you think of Justin Verlander re-signing with the Astros? I had a feeling that Jim Crane, the owner of the Houston Astros, who was a college pitcher and loves pitching, his pitcher bias, so to speak, uh, uh, loved Verlander, was going to do everything he can to keep Verlander there. And, and what a deal for Verlander. I mean, a one year, $25 million deal. The second year is for 25 million and it's his option. 
So you talk about, it's really a two-year $50 million deal. Only it could get better because Verlander could come back and win a Cy Young Award or have a banner season. And he could be like, maybe uh, start turning the narrative that he's the the baseball version of Tom Brady. He's going to pitch until he's yes. 45 years old. He's in great shape. He just got his elbow reconstructed. So that's got some, some mileage on it now. Uh, no reason to think he can't keep going the way he keeps himself in shape. So Jim Crane was not going to let him go. That was going to be a hard uh, offer to be two years, 50 million. Uh, well, that's a tough one. Uh, that's a tough one to match. At some point, you got to draw the line in the sand. Jim Crane was not going to let him go, in my opinion. So Justin Verlander certainly showed some loyalty there as well to Houston, because I know that Kate Upton and Justin Verlander would love to be in New York. They are big city people. They would have loved it to be to be Yankees. And maybe about five years ago would have been better. <laughs> before before he went to Houston the first time that that that's uh water under the under the bridge as they say but yeah I, I just feel like Jim Crane was the x factor he was going to pay whatever it took and send a message that you know hey even though we've lost Springer last year to free agency the Houston Astros and we may lose Correa this year they're still in it to win it and then mm-hmm. that, that's the message he was trying to send and Verlander was the guy and he wasn't going to let him go 39 years he turns 39 years old in February so and he's coming off Tommy John, so there's obviously risk there. But it's Justin Verlander we're talking about. This is a guy who, you know, six years after he retires, he's going to go right into Cooperstown. And it's obviously a sort of a boom or bust thing. If he actually pitches and makes 20, 25, 30 starts next season, it's going to be a huge win for the Astros because I'm. you guys probably agree it's not a matter of, you know, his – skill or his his quality on the mound it's a question of his health will he hold up if he pitches he's going to pitch well Mm -hmm. I agree with that I think that's obviously the main question if he's out there I think he's going to pitch well I think if he's on the field he's going to perform and it would be a, a huge accomplishment to watch him kind of anchor a completely different Astros rotation now with with Garcia and Urquidy and and Valdez as opposed to what was there when he first arrived in Houston. So I think that's a a conceivable 2022 season for the Houston Astros. And like you were saying, David, I don't see them like taking, like, yeah, they they may not be willing to pay a guy like Carlos Correa to stay with that organization that drafted him. And look, it's not my money, but I I don't understand why. That doesn't mean that they're not going to maybe go shopping for, a guy like Trevor's story or Marcus Semyon to replace him. They're connected to Starling Marte as well. So I think that we haven't kind of heard the the last of the Astros, so to speak, as being an elite American league team, even though their, you know, their off season outlook, is just going to be kind of shadowed with what Carlos Correa does and, and where he winds up. I completely agree, Justin. Those are all really valid points. Remember that the Houston Nationals still have a good farm system. They still have produced very good young players. At the top of that list is Jordan Alvarez, among others. And there's there's a few more on the way as well. So, yes, they're ready to turn it over. They're ready to retool, not rebuild, I guess, is the proper expression, uh, uh, especially with the two young pitchers. Now, you've got, as you said, you've got Verlander to lead that staff. You've got two young starters that look really good, that had good postseason appearances. Uh, you've got some some good young position players, too, to supplement it. So, yes, I agree. They could easily pivot and let Correa go and sign a different free agent 
to play shortstop for them. That, that, that's certainly within their power to do so. And I think it's another example of understanding how winning pays off the next year, the following year. And I think we're going to find that out <clears throat> when, you, when you think about the, the teams that had really good years that are building on momentum. You, you start right at the top. I think Houston, five straight years, they've had extended postseason runs. That fan base loves that team, almost to the point of where they're protective of them because of the controversy they've been through. So in some sense, to, to me, uh, they're taking advantage and trying to keep that momentum going in Houston, and that's the right move because they're on top of it. And it doesn't ha- you don't have to think that far uh, back to think about the five years in a row where they were losing 100 games and building up, uh, you know, when they tanked, so to speak. And uh, that was a long, hard run. I, uh, you don't want to go back to those days. I think there's a better way to do it. Uh, the last thing you want to do is break it down, and then your fan base is saying, oh, here we go again. You know, we're going to have to wait five more years before a decent team to watch. How about this, guys? <clears throat> One last thing on Verlander. Wants to pitch till he's 45, <clears throat> and the TB12 method, like you said, David, should be there. 226 wins. Is he in the range? Does he have a chance of that 300 number? You know, that that's subject. It's such a subjective uh, way to look at it nowadays in terms of uh, does he have the support to win those games? Is he going to get run support? Is he going to get defensive support? The one loss record in the modern game, you know, how we look at that now, that's so different. But, but to answer your question, yes. It, I mean, it's going to take him to pitch five more years to get there four or five more years of good years of double digit wins. You know, I, I can't, I mean, I'm not doing the math right on the, off the top of my head, but I would say it's a good four or five years away. He has the desire to do it. I think that's the key. It's not like he's going year to year. Uh, he signed this deal with an opt out at 39 years old. Let me opt out because I might get a better deal, a long-term deal next year. If I come back and throw the ball, well, he's thinking five more years anyway. So that's half the battle. Uh, as opposed to, hey, let me just go year to year. I'm 40 years old. Uh, speaking from experience, when I was 40 years old, I was at the end of the rope. I didn't have much left, you know, but I wasn't in, in, in physical shape uh, that Justin Verlander is in. And certainly he's got a new elbow to work with as well. So uh, we'll see how that goes. But part of it is the mindset. He wants it. 226 wins, 74 away from 300, 15 wins each in five, in five years is 75 wins. So he would have to win 15 a year for five years and pitch into his forties. It's a tall task, but if you're betting on one guy to do it, he might be the one. Yeah. No matter what the, the workload or the usage fads and trends are going to be over these, you know, next five years for, for teams in major league baseball, there are always the, the sturdy veterans who maybe buck that trend. They don't, prescribe to what everyone else is doing but even then where are we going to be in five years who knows so uh i think it's cool though that that verlander is uh is going to be with a, a different astros rotation and, and sort of lead and shepherd those those youngsters into a new season all right one more uh before we get to robbie Wright, noah Syndergaard going to the angels one year around 21 million gets a slightly more gets three million more than that mets qualifying offer what'd you think about Syndergaard? going coast to coast here and winding up with the angels. Well, you have to, you have to consider uh, the, the history of the angels, right. Over the last several years, you've got uh, maybe the two best players in the game and Otani and Mike Trout, and they haven't sniffed a postseason game in forever. 
and their pitching really is the reason why. So when you, when you put those dynamics together and you feel like, wow, we we're squandering the careers of some of the best players in the history of the game, uh, that you've got to do anything you can to shore up your weakness. The weakness is obviously pitching and uh, with Syndergaard, you know, it's, it's still a one-year deal. Even though you look at, wow, the guy's only pitched two innings in two years, he's still young. He's now uh, ready to go post-op. He's had this Tommy John surgery. And even though you overpaid a bit, it's still only one year. It's not a 10-year deal. So I like what the Angels did. You know, let's take our chances now. Let's sell him on playing in L.A., playing for the Angels. Let him be in the same clubhouse with Shohei Otani and Mike Trout. And then the next thing you know, if he has a good year, you're more prone to sign him. You can extend him because you sold him on the culture and the clubhouse and being around great players and playing in L.A. So to me, it's a really smart move by the Angels and it could pay off long term if, if things work out there for you. The old saying, you know, there's no such thing as a bad one year deal. This puts that to the test at 21 million, but <laughs> it's, it's a little bit of a, because it's only a one-year commitment, it's a little bit of a low risk, high reward possibility. Well, the next guy that could possibly be on this list is coming off a great week without even throwing a pitch. Uh, Robbie Ray securing the signing award here in 2021, also a free agent. So he's going to have his list of suitors. And that is going to be, no matter what happens with the CBA, it's going to be a big money deal. One of the big, big money deals of this offseason. So a lot going on with Robbie Ray coming off a fantastic season, his Cy Young Award, and now free agency. A lot to tackle here as Robbie Ray joins us on Toe in the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. Robbie, thanks for joining us here on Toe in the Slab. Congratulations, Cy Young Award winner here for 2021. And Nearly a clean sweep. So, yeah, you win, but you get 29 of the 30 first place votes. Did that have any extra meaning for you there? Yeah, it was great. It was great to see that the baseball writers were acknowledging uh, the year that I had and uh, was just uh, super thankful for, you know, all their votes. Yeah, I just wanted to congratulate you. I, I got a chance to watch a lot of your games this year. Obviously, James Smythe here as well. We work for the Yes Network, so we – we got a chance to break down your pitching this year. And to me, it was just remarkable, you know, the way you threw the ball this year in terms of your attack mode, the way you went right after hitters. Everybody wants to talk about your stuff. To me, it was your aggressiveness that really paid off this year. And it starts right at the top, right? I mean, we, we did our first episode on, on first, baseball first, strike one, the first out, the first inning, and it's such a big part of the game for you. It seemed like you were strike one all year long. Was that something that was in the back of your mind or? Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, going into this year, um, it was no secret that I had struggled with, uh, you know, command. And, uh, you know, I think partly that was because, you know, I always had the mentality of I, I wanted to throw strikes, but the physical and the mental didn't necessarily line up. Uh, and I, f I feel like nailing down my mechanics and, and putting on some bulk, some really good weight and, and you know, continuing with that mindset of, of pounding the zone and pounding uh, – you know, pounding the strike zone, pounding guys in. I mean, that was kind of my my MO all year was just owning the inside part of the plate. So um, I, I think those two things combined just allowed me to to feel more comfortable. And obviously hitters are are way more comfortable when it's 1-0 than 0-1. So I think just an extra focus on that thing, that, that aspect as well is, is what helped me. Robbie, I saw a quote of yours uh, from this season saying that 
if I get 2-0, 3-1, 3-0 on a guy, now I feel like I'm still in the at-bat. And before it might have been a four-pitch walk. Part of the big turnaround for you this season was uh, lowering your walk rate. What went into that for you going into this season? Yeah, I think it was, uh, like I said, the mentality. I, you know, I, I felt like uh, earlier in the year, uh, you know, I get in some situations, 3-0, 3-1, uh, and then I, you know, throw a fastball down the middle of the plate, and it, it's a solo homer. But I, I'm a firm believer in solo homers aren't going to beat you. Um, but then uh, later on in the year, I felt like as my command got even better, I was able to, you know, 3-0, 3-1, that ball is on the inside part of the plate, or it's dotted down and away. And so it's still a, a, an extremely competitive pitch, but it's the pitch that I want to throw in that situation. Uh, and so I feel like, you know, earlier on in the year, I felt like it was just attack, attack, attack. And then as my command got even better uh, building uh, later into the year, I felt like it was a, attack a certain spot. You know, throughout this past season, and as you're doing more and more interviews after winning the Cy Young, the the documentation sort of of your your improvements from maybe this time a year ago up until now they've they've been there, right? Like the, the the physical transformation you mentioned, adding the bulk, the the tweaks in your mechanics in your delivery, but then the the mental part as well. When you are kind of like outlining what you need to do to improve this time a year ago, how are these things itemized? Do you attack them one at a time? How is it all mapped out? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, heading into the offseason, my main focus um, from the jump was uh, adding the bulk and getting stronger. I felt like that was something that needed to be done, and that's something that I could focus on right away. You know, uh, coming off the previous year, you know, I like to take a little bit of time off uh, uh, throwing wise, but, um, so I, so I felt like that part of my game was, was the main focus to begin. And then once I started getting into my throwing progression, uh, is when I started to focus on my mechanics and, uh, focus on my delivery and, and, you know, throughout the off season, I think the, the mental side of the game was always something that I was working on at, at all, at all times. And so, you know, while I'm working on my, uh, building up in the in the weight room, I'm also working on my my mental part of the game as well. So uh, that's just kind of how you know I felt like it was it was working really well for me. Yeah, for, for the young pitchers out there, Robbie, I mean, it, one of the biggest changes I've seen is the training. And you talked about bulking up and the two a day uh, workout routine. And at this point, it's kind of legendary because it led to the Cy Young Award, but. How do you balance that in the offseason? I know you said you coordinated it with the training staff. You know, it's kind of out of the norm for you throughout your career to lift that much. Can you train for velocity nowadays? Did you? And it seemed like it worked because your fastball was up a click this year. And that kind of led to all your pitches being a little sharper, too, as well. Yeah, I think that was a, a combination of of not only the, the, the weightlifting, but also the mechanics being sound and being repeatable. I think, uh, you know having those two things, I mean, it's really easy to be strong. There's a lot of people in the world that are strong, but they can't throw a baseball really hard. So uh, I think it was meshing those two things together and, and, you know, having those two aspects blend really well together is what allowed me to do that. Is that part of uh, why you were throwing a lot more fastballs this season? Your fastball usage rate went from 43% in 2019 up to 47 last year and then 59 this season 
Yeah, I felt really confident with my fastball. I felt like it, 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 it was a pitch that every other pitch kind of played off of really well. So if I could establish my fastball uh, in the zone and, and get hitters thinking about that, then it, I, th- I felt like it made my other pitches better. Robbie, what kind of weightlifting routines are you actually doing? So for like a young pitcher right now who's trying to improve himself in the offseason, what would you recommend? I did a lot of, uh, as far as lower body workouts, I think the, the bulk of my uh, workouts were, were lower body, but mostly focusing on hamstring strength. Uh, I feel like a lot, of, uh, a lot of work that we do is uh, predicated on hamstring strength. I mean, the, this, you know, driving down the mound, everything is driven with your hamstrings. And so for me, I felt like uh, not necessarily like forgetting about your quads, but mainly focusing on my hamstrings because that's what's doing the bulk of the lifting is as far as the pitching motion. And, and, you know, when you finish your, your motion out front, you're putting a lot of stress on that hamstring when, when you're locking that leg out. And so for me, it was, it was focusing on those, that, that part of my game. And I felt like it, it helped out a ton. And it also made my pants a lot tighter. Yeah, that was what I was going to say, right? That explains the pants, right? And I had to get one. Can you give me one of those T-shirts? That's a great T-shirt from you from behind on the mound. That's fantastic. I think we saw that you're uh, in the clubhouse. A lot of your teammates are wearing that T-shirt, especially on the days you pitch. So that that was funny. That that was remarkable. I I loved it. I think the way you took it was great. so yeah, now we know it's that off-season lower body work, uh, workout in the, yeah, the, in the same the size, size pants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pants are the same size. It's just <laughs> the legs got bigger. <laughs> David, what what were you doing in the off-season in terms of training? Were you working on those hamstrings? Uh, not as much, you know. I mean, when I broke, that's probably you know that's one of the things I want to talk to Robbie about. I was fascinated, you know, watching his career and seeing him make this huge jump this year and confidence and mound presence and working out and. You know, I, I, when I played in the 80s for the Roy, the Royals, the Kansas City Royals did not even have a weight room. George Brett, one of the greatest players, the greatest third baseman ever, never lifted a weight his entire career. So that's obviously a big change in the game today. Uh, position players were the first ones that started heavy in the weight room, and now pitchers are doing it and seeing results. And that's one of the reasons why I was curious with Robbie is how you make that balance between, you know, he said he was kind of sore when he first started working out and, kind of getting through that point to where it, it, it translated into, you know, being able to have that balance, being able to throw a baseball, as Robbie said, and then also be strong and add some velocity to it at the same time. To me, that balancing act is, is something I'm always interested in. Yeah, for me, I, I felt like I've always had the flexibility. Uh, I felt like my, my body always moves really well. So adding the strength, adding the bulk wasn't going to uh, hinder me at all. I felt like having those two things, being strong, but also being flexible uh, is, is crucial. I mean, what we do, we put so much strain on our body. If you're uptight and everything is really tight, you're not going to, you know, achieve the goal that you're, you're, you're trying to accomplish. And, uh, so for me, those, those, you know, being strong, but also being flexible, uh, while I was strong was, uh, was a, a really big focus for me. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, uh, it's, it's definitely a balance. You, you know, you kind of have to push the limits a little bit. I, I, at sometimes there was times I really didn't want to work out, but I knew I needed to because that's what I knew was going to get me to the next level. You're putting in all that hard work. I read a quote from your pitching coach in Toronto, Pete Walker. He something that really jumped out at me is the way he phrased this. He said, "Robbie has willed himself." 
to this point. And that obviously involves a lot of hard work that's probably done like when no one's watching, right? What is the hardest part about that journey? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the hardest part for me is just uh, the grind of the season, the 162-game season, especially coming off a 60-game season last year. Um, you know, getting back into the swing of a, a normal season and and throwing 30 you know, plus starts. I think um, the time off that we had from the year prior really, you know, it really messed up guys' timing and messed up, you know, the timing of the offseason, the timing of the actual season, the start and the stop of uh, the pandemic. You know, it, it really messed with guys. And so for me, uh, it was just getting back into that grind of a full 162-game season and and really having to grind through those, you know, dog days of summer where things start to, you know, get monotonous and, uh, you feel like you're doing the same thing every single day. And, you know, you just find ways here and there to break it up. And, um, you know, whether it's a new workout routine or adding something to your throwing program or, you know, backing off a little bit, maybe maybe not throwing a bullpen one week, just listening to your body. I think uh, uh, listening to your body is crucial because it's going to tell you what it's feeling and it's going to tell you, hey, you need to back off a, a lift today. Maybe do just do um, – you know, body weight instead of trying to lift heavy or, you know, maybe, maybe you throw 10 pitches in your bullpen session instead of 30. And so I think uh, for me, that was uh, the biggest thing. So you have the physical transformation and then on the mound, you know, some of the, the command improvements that we were talking about, but all of that stems from the mechanical tweaks with, with your delivery. And with that comes a lot of repetitiveness, right? A lot of time on the mound trying to repeat that delivery what kind of repetitive work goes into making sure and, and then ultimately realizing that your delivery is repeatable yeah I did a lot of towel drills in the offseason just you know not trying to put a lot of stress on my arm um, but being able to do mechanics and and get get things kind of nailed down before I got to spring training and so uh, for me you know doing those drills in the mirror and just seeing you know the same motion every single time and, and just really working on that repetitiveness of my delivery and, and finding a comfortable delivery to where, you know, I'm not having to struggle or stress to get into these positions that I'm in. It just feels natural. And, and for me, you know, that, that natural feel is, is huge. And, you know, I was able to take it into spring training and, and hit the ground running with it. You know, one thing I've always been fascinated with in watching you work, Robbie, is that your pace on the mound, you really seem to buy into working quickly. I know it's a, it's an old cliche. We've heard it from a lot of pitching coaches, but for you, it seemed like I hardly ever saw you shake off. Are you the type of pitcher that kind of uh, worries more, lets the catcher call the game and you just kind of pick up the target and worry about execution? Or are there times during the game where you kind of drive the bus and you're like, wait a minute, I know what I want to throw here. I'm going to, I'm going to shake off, especially with runners on base. It gets a little trickier trying to hide your signs, multiple signs, man on second base. So how did you handle that? It seemed like your, your pace was amazing. And, and you kind of went with whatever the catcher called the, the, the majority of the time. Yeah. I felt like, uh, you know, I did the work beforehand. I felt like me and my catcher were always on the same page. I, I, you know, we talked it through before the game. He knew in what, you know, what situations I wanted to throw certain pitches. So for me, uh, just being prepared before going into a game and not really um, having to really focus on that and having him prepared, not only myself, but having him prepared uh, was was big for me. And then, like you said, there's the times in the, the game where 
you have to have a little feel as well. It's not just reading a, a stat off of a sheet of paper and saying this guy can't hit this pitch in this count. It's, you know, he, you know, setting up hitters later in the game, third time through the order, whatever it is, you know, you have to mix things up. So I think, uh, you know, being prepared, but also being able to make those adjustments in game um, is, is how you get it done. Do you try to read the bat and as the bat goes on, you try to read the hitter or are you just kind of focused on your own, your own game, your own mechanics, your own execution? I think mostly it's on um, myself, what I do best and, and what, what makes me succeed. Uh, I feel like, you know, for me, if I can do what I do best, it's going to be better than what the hitter can do. David, did your pace vary from catcher to catcher in your career? It could. Yes. I mean, it's, it's a real, uh, it's a real part of pitching, you know, and like Robbie said, he put it very well in terms of your prep before the game, your trust factor of your catcher. And sometimes as pitchers, you, you, if that doubt gets into your mind, you know, as far as you, you get caught up in the selection process, Oh no, is this the right pitch to throw? Uh, should I trust the catcher or not? And that takes away, that makes you defensive on the mound. At least it did for me. So, you know, I was fascinated to see that because I was, you know, Rob, Robbie had such a great year and he got on such a good role that to me, the times I watched him pitch, there, there was a synchronicity between him and the catcher and they just seemed to roll. They got into a rhythm together. Robbie hardly ever got out of that rhythm, even with men on base. And I, you know, I was just curious as to how, you know, the trust factor he had with his catchers and how that worked, because whatever they were doing, you got to keep it going, you know, because uh, that, that's the right formula. Strike one, first of all, first and foremost. And then don't don't get caught up in the selection process as much. And the execution is always more important than the selection in my mind. Yeah, I always felt like uh, like I always work better at a, a faster pace, not only with, uh, you know, in between pitches, but with my delivery as well. I felt like, um, you know, if you give yourself too much time to think, that's when things go wrong. Would you would you be would you mind if if they had a pitch clock? You know, if, if Rob Manfred, the commissioner and the, the Players Association decided we're going to change the rule and make it a 20 second pitch clock. That wouldn't, have, that wouldn't impact you. I don't think, but yeah. How, what's your feel on that? Talking to some yeah, of your teammates. I, I think uh, it's, uh, you know, that's a tough subject. Uh, I, I think that's something that they've, they've tried to implement before and it didn't really work out because there are guys that work slower and they need to work slower. And uh, there's, there's guys that are methodical in the game with, with what they do and, you know, I feel like a lot of relievers, they have, you know, their quirks and the things that they go through on the mound and their, their cues and everything. And, and so a 20, like 20 second, 30 second pitch clock, I don't think it's uh, necessarily a good thing for the game. Do you think it's something that could be culturally adjusted being taught to young pitchers as they come up through the minor leagues and then you know, eventually break through into the big leagues? Can it start from a lower level and gradually change? Uh, I don't, I don't think so. Like I said, I mean, pitchers are, they have their, their routines. I mean, not only do you have your routine, uh, as far as, you know, off the field, but on the field, you have your routines as well. You know, you have your, uh, whatever, grab the rosin bag, you, you tap it three times. Guys, pitchers are, uh, creatures of habit and, uh, you know, you don't really realize the things that you do, but, you know, People bring up to me all the time, you know, you strike a guy out, you keep getting closer to second base every single time. And it's like, by the time you struck out 10 guys, you're almost touching second base by the time you're getting the ball back. So, uh, you know, that's, there's, there's things that you just don't notice. And, and I think, you know, 
trying to bring that to someone's attention when they're trying to go out and compete is, is not good for the game. I know when athletes are asked questions about awards, like during the season, they try to be as modest as possible. They don't want to get too far ahead of himself, but look off season. Now you've won the Cy Young award as your season is progressing. When did it enter your mind that this award could be attainable, that it was a a very real possibility? Yeah, I think, um, after August, I mean, I felt like I had a really good August and I felt like, um, you know, not necessarily, I didn't have the wins to show for it, but, you know, pitcher of the month, uh, pitched really well. I think every time out, you know, seven, seven strong innings, eight innings, you know, I, I, I gave my team a chance to win every single time I went out there. And, and, you know, I really noticed that, you know, everything was starting to come together and it was starting to get to the point where it was like, okay, this, this could be a, this could be a real thing. And that's also when, you know, reporters started talking to me and asking me these things. So, you know, as much as you do try to tone it out, there's people that are, they're bringing it to your attention. Yeah, Robbie, you know, I, I, one, one other question. I know James Smythe here, he's a, he's a researcher, a great researcher that we work together on the Yes Network. And he and I both picked you to win the Cy Young towards the end. We saw your numbers and James can kind of take a deeper dive into that. But one of the questions I had was as far as the, the new technology, is that something you use of high speed cameras, the spin rate, all the information that's out there nowadays, you know, and I know every major league team has access to that information. Is that something that helped you that you look at that you're aware of what your numbers are, your spin rate, your vertical horizontal breaks. Is that something you pay attention to is something you've used to help you? Or are you more just, I'm, you know, I'm going to do what I do and do it well and, and, and let, let other people worry about those numbers. Yeah. So spin rate and vertical break and, and horizontal break, those things I don't really focus on. There is one number that, that really matters to me and it's my release point and making sure that both of, you know, my fastball and my slider are coming out, you know, the same release point every single time, because as far as tunneling factor, I think that, that, that number is more important than any other number um, in the game. James, can you put his season into perspective for us a little bit? I know you and I have talked about Robbie Ray this year and the numbers he had, I thought easily was, was the Cy Young award winner down the stretch, the way he finished, the way he was consistent all year long, his ERA, his innings pitched, uh, anything else you want to add to that, James? But I think leading in leading the American league in ERA two eight four and innings pitched 193 and a third. I think that seals it because you're combining the quality dominating and quantity of going deep into games, answering the bell at every start. So that's pretty much the recipe for winning a Cy Young. Uh, out of the 20 pitchers in the Cy Young era to lead their league in innings, NERA, 18 of them won it. So I think that that cinches it for Robbie there. And James, something that jumps out when, when you just talked about you know his accomplishments here, taking the ball every fifth day being dependable right leading the league in innings pitched and David you could attest to this as well Robbie how much did it mean to you to be dependable uh, in terms of your teammates relying on you and and looking at you as that top of the rotation starting pitcher yeah it was huge uh you know I I I want to lead the league in innings every year I mean I think that's what every pitcher wants to do I think that's the number one uh, number one stat that every pitcher looks at is is where I'm at, at on the leaderboard as far as innings. Uh, and I, I feel like that dependability is huge in this game, especially in a game where, you know, 
the game's changing and guys aren't throwing as many innings. If you can be a guy that sticks around and throws 200, you know, 190, 200 innings every year uh, is, is huge. It's huge for a staff that not only is great for your starting rotation, but it saves your bullpen. And, and those bullpen guys appreciate it. And I heard it from them the most probably every time uh, I come out of a game and, you know, we're high-fiving down the line. It's like, man, you did it for us today. It was just like you saved the, the bullpen. It was, you know, they only had to cover two, three innings every night. And so, um, uh, for me, you know, the teammate, for my teammates to show me that, that they were, they were proud of me was, was great. Yeah. Well, unless, you know, another question I had for you, Robbie was how difficult was it? You know, I thought the blue Jays were such a dangerous team this year. If you guys got into the playoffs, you easily could have made a deep run. I think we all felt that way. Um, was it tough playing in three different parks? I mean, you started off in Dunedin. And then, you know, Saline Field again in Buffalo. And then finally, you get to Rogers Center where you absolutely dealt at Rogers Center, by the way. I mean, I think your numbers were a little over one, your ERA at home this year. So how difficult was that? And how much did you enjoy pitching at home? Yeah, it was great. Uh, you know, pitching at home was 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 what we needed. It was the, the boost that we needed to get us down the stretch to be in it. Uh, but, yeah, it definitely was difficult pitching in, in Dunedin and also in, in Buffalo, I mean, you know, for me, it was it, it was less uh, about the parks and, and more about the fans. We we never really had that fan base until we got to Toronto and then we get to Toronto and they show out and, you know, we go on a run and it was it was pretty spectacular. But, you know, some of those games earlier in the year, if we're playing those games in Toronto, you know, maybe we don't get swept by Tampa down in Dunedin, maybe. Maybe we win a couple extra games here or there and we sneak into it and we do something special. But, uh, you know, not here to make any excuses, but I, de I definitely think that it was a difficult year as far as pitching in three different stadiums. Coney was right about you dealing at Rogers Center, by the way. 204 ERA in eight starts with 71 Ks in 53 innings. It's pretty good. <laughs> and through all that, through the different routines, you probably had to make – and look, we all have Yankee ties here. This Blue Jays team was so fun to watch between the offense, the dynamic pitching, you know, the, the bullpen getting it done here. What, what was what was this season like in terms of the camaraderie having to go through those three different cities, keep those routines? I know you had the the home run blazer, the the chemistry in the dugout. It was so, um, it, you know, it was so evident throughout everyone watching a Blue Jays game. What was what was the chemistry like? It was great. I, I felt like in the clubhouse, we didn't have one guy in there that that brought the room down. Everybody was just there for everybody else. And it was super fun. Uh, it was a great atmosphere. We were having fun every night. You know, we had, you know, uh, I don't know if you guys saw after wins, but we had the strobe lights with the, the you know, smoke machines and the music playing and everybody's going crazy. And uh, so, I mean, it was fun. It was uh, <clears throat> it was a fun year, a great group of guys. And uh, we, we just really enjoyed being around each other. And I think being in three different stadiums and it, uh, you know, three different parks and it, three different clubhouses, it just kind of brought us closer together because we kind of, we, we had to, we were our, each other's family. And uh, you know, it just, it just made us even closer. You got to wear the home run jacket, right? You're the only picture. <laughs> yeah. You actually got to wear the home run jacket. That was pretty yeah. cool. Did that thing get washed at all? I don't know. I mean, I hope it did. <laughs> 
<laughs> but it didn't, didn't smell by game 162, no? Because there was a lot of there was a lot of use out of that jacket. Yeah, we hit quite a few home runs this year, but no, I didn't uh, notice any <laughs> abnormal smells coming from it. So that chemistry, your performance on the mound, obviously led to a memorable season. Comes at the right time. Free agency here. What has the free agency process been like for you so far? Uh, it's been fun. You know, me and my family were enjoying it. You know, um, <clears throat> uh, it's just like uh, this is what every every player wants to get to is free agency, and they want to get to it at the right time. And I feel like I'm right at the perfect time. I feel I feel good about where I'm at mentally, physically. Everything's come together. It's all come together in you know, a great season winning the, the Cy Young. So, um, you know, I feel like th this is, uh, you know, just perfect timing. And like I said, it's a, it's a fun, uh, it's a fun experience to go through. Um, me and my family are really enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah. We'll take a, yeah enjoy it. I know it's uh, the, a lot of players work very hard in the history of baseball back to Kurt flood that, uh, you know, that gave the players the right to have this time in your life. So you earned it. You deserve it, Robbie. Enjoy every minute of it. Take your time. You know, uh, answer all the questions. Do all the exploration you need. Talk to your family. Uh, but, yeah, I, lo I love that answer you just gave and that you're enjoying the process because for some players it can be a little painful at times. It can be a little anxiety-ridden, you know, trying to make decisions. But that's the right attitude. Just enjoy the process. You earned it. And you're right. Your timing is perfect right now. And that that's it's hard to do. You know, it's the luck of the draw sometimes. But – it's also uh, because of your hard work paying off that put you in this position. Thank you. Yeah, it, it didn't happen by accident. Uh, David, take us through what it's like, you know, like, hey, we like our Blue Jay fans. You know, we thought that Blue Jays team was nice. What, what is it like winning a World Series championship in Toronto? Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, you have the whole country of Canada, you know, behind your team. I, I always say people, it's a little bit underappreciated but the Blue Jays are Canada's team and when they're doing well and winning the whole country is behind that team the the local ratings are through the roof uh, even though we don't see that in the in the USA as much because sometimes the Canadian ratings on television don't don't come through but believe me the ratings are incredible uh, the support for the Blue Jays just incredible in 1992 I was part of that Blue Jays team that won the World Series the first one in Canada uh, it was unbelievable. The ticker tape parade around uh, King Street, all the way around downtown, filled back into the Rogers Center, which was then called the Sky Dome. And that had 50,000 people in it. So you win a championship in Toronto, you got the whole country behind you and you're forever remembered. Uh, people still talk to me. I mean, all these years later, whenever I go to Toronto, it's something that, uh, you know, that they can never take away from you. Just like this Cy Young Award, Robbie, nobody can ever take it away from you. And notice when you get that award, Robbie, the dry spitter grip. I don't know if you've ever seen the, the actual trophy, the Cy Young Award winning trophy, but it's a hand and it's got uh, a no seeds grip, like a dry spitter grip. So it's, <laughs> it's kind of an inside joke for Cy Young Award winners. But, you know, when you see that, when you see that Cy Young Award winner, there's a lot of pride. But if you want a little chuckle, look at that dry spitter grip that, that the guy's got. It's pretty fun. I will. I will. And look, Robbie doesn't need any more help, any more information, I'm sure, during this process here, David. But look. We have our Yankee ties. Describe to him what it's like winning a championship in New York as well. Yeah, well, you know, you're going up the Canyon of Heroes in New York, and uh, you're starting down at the bottom of Broadway, and it's the same route 
that uh, the astronauts that when they landed on the moon took that anybody who's anybody throughout history who's done something for our country or some done something significant that's the route you take uh it, it, you know and there's nothing like it uh you know, especially when you've got the sky or the high rises with all the confetti coming down. And then when you hit a side street, you look to the right, and there's nothing but people. And you look to the left down that side street, and there's nothing but people and people climbing up in trees. So, you know, there, there is some passion for baseball on the, on the East coast and certainly in New York and uh, everybody loves a winner. There's no doubt about it. When you win, uh, you, you will, you will get celebrated. Certainly up the Canyon are heroes, nothing like it. Sounds pretty amazing. <laughs> it's worth it. It's worth all the all the all the work, Robbie. And uh, you know, I thought your Blue Jays had a shot if they would have got in this year, but we'll see. And you know, in, in the future, uh, certainly uh, whatever team you're on moving forward, you're going to improve their chances to 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 get there and then and have your odds increased in terms of uh, a chance to to do something like that and win and win a championship. So we wish you all the best. I know free agency it can be a tough thing. It, it can be, it, as I said, it can be anxiety ridden. But I love your answer. I love the way you're approaching it. And, Certainly wish you nothing but the best. And, you know, it's a, it's a hard decision sometimes to make, but sometimes that decision's made for you too, because we all want to be wanted, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you want to hear that from, from every team, how much, how much they want you to be a part of their team and their organization. So there's a lot to think about. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Robbie, thank you so much. Terrific job again. And congratulations on a wonderful season. Maybe, you know what, in, you know, in, in one sentence, you look back on this season, everything that went into it, the results, team, player-oriented, what's going to come to mind? <sighs> uh, I don't know. It was, a, it was a speechless year. I mean, I felt like from top to bottom, I felt like there's not many words that can describe how much fun it was and uh, how much I really enjoyed the whole process. All the work you put in, again, from the beginning, from from late 2020, all up until now, all paid off, all very worth it. Thanks so much for joining us here, and uh, congratulations again, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Cy Young Award winner, Robbie Ray. <laughs> you can never take that away from your brother. Congratulations. They never will. Thank you. <laughs> you know, David, I'm glad Robbie came out and was the one who addressed the tight pants and how he didn't really change sizes, didn't downgrade. It was just that all that off-season work kind of tightened, bulked everything up around the uh, the thigh area. So, uh, you know, he, he came out, kind of broke the ice in that direction. But, uh, but hey, a fantastic season for Robbie Ray. And he's, he's got a difficult decision here ahead of him. Difficult, but a very good decision, right? Yeah, his timing is perfect right now. I mean, everybody wants a starting pitcher that's left-handed, that has power uh, stuff. Well, he's that guy uh, coming off a Cy Young award-winning season. Uh, you know, you hear that cliche every spring training, you know, and it, it, we kind of make fun of it after a while. And the beat writers and the, the baseball writers talk about this. Uh, you know, what's the over and under before? Hey, I'm in the best shape of my life. Uh, the, the player's going to say that in spring training, right? Oh, I, I worked. I'm in the best shape of my life. You know, a 10 year veteran. Well, what took you so long? You should have been in the best shape of your life a long time ago. But nonetheless, Robbie Ray was in the best shape of his life. He really was. He wasn't lying. He, he went on a fanatical workout program, two-a-days like college football. Uh, it really paid off. Uh, he was able to muster that balance between mechanics and maintaining your flexibility and adding velocity. His fastball was up a mile and a half this year, according to, to most of the measurements. So, yes, uh, Robbie Ray was one of those guys where 
he, the cliche rang true. He really was in the best shape of his life. It paid off. He won the Cy Young Award. Now he's a free agent. When we're talking with Robbie and so much of that was about the weightlifting, the, the physical transformation to get him to that point where he can work on the things on the mound, make those adjustments. Do you ever think about what today's workout regimen, today's training could have done for you during your playing career? Absolutely. I would, you know, I'm a little jealous. I would have used all the tools, uh, you know, to me, it's just information, you know, you know, what are you afraid of? You know, I want to know my numbers. I want to know everything. You know, it's, a, it's you put the high speed cameras up. Uh, let me see my release point. Let me compare it year to year. Let me see what I can glean from that. Let me see my vertical break on my slider. Let me see my horizontal break on my slider. Let me see if I can change the shape to it. I would be all over that stuff. And then, yes, Justin, I would have been throwing weighted baseballs. They were out when, you know, during my career towards the end, but we kind of laughed at it and said, you're going to hurt your arm if you're throwing a weighted baseball. We, we were antiquated in our views as far as training goes, but we didn't have anything to, to, to base it on. No, no basis for comparison, but you, you betcha. I would have tried everything, including weight training, much more weight training. I did do some towards the end of my career, mostly lightweights, but uh, yeah, I would have, I would have messed around with that weighted ball. I would have certainly tried to uh, build some arm speed, some arm strength, especially at the end of my career. Cause that's what you lose at the end of your career. You lose a little range of motion, a little flexibility. You lose a little velocity as you get older. If there's a way to counter that, there's a way to turn back the clock uh, in, in terms of your arm age. Uh, I would have done it. I would have tried it without a doubt. Uh, so yes, I, you know, I, so, I'm not one of those old school guys that says, oh, don't lift weights. No, no, we, we did it right in our day. No, actually quite the opposite. I'm, I'm more interested than ever in, in, in what they're doing nowadays, how they're trading, and what the, what the numbers say. So there would have been an emphasis on the squat rack for David Cohn. The, <laughs> Definitely. The leg curl, the leg extension, <laughs> the, the leg press. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, fantastic spot with Robbie Ray. We wish him the best here in free agency. And it's, I, it has a chance to be an historic signing because it could happen after this new CBA and there could be new things in place for how teams conduct business. So it's going to be interesting to watch for his free agency on, from that standpoint. And James, as we take a look at this week, this day here in, in baseball history, it's obviously had to be something that happened during an offseason i'm gonna guess it could be a free agent signing but we'll leave it to you here as we take a look at at this date this week in pitching history here on tone of the slab sorry it's not a free agent signing but it oh. is apropos with robbie ray coming on the show on uh saturday november 27th will be the anniversary of don newcomb winning the first cy young award in 1956 Brooklyn Dodgers right-hander Cy Young died in November 1955 and they decided to, to make an award to honor that year's best pitcher with his name. Um, in 1956, Newcomb went 27 and seven for the Dodgers with a 306 ERA. He won the Cy Young and the MVP for the pennant winning uh, Brooklyn Dodgers who lost to the Yankees in the world series, but Newcomb, taking home the hardware for the first time. And back then it was only one award for the entire major leagues, not American league, national league. They didn't split it up with one in each league until 1967. And one more thing, 
Coney, I know this is a guy near and dear to your heart. Uh, Tuesday, November 23rd, will be Louis Tion's 81st birthday. 19-year big league career, three-time All-Star, two AL ERA titles. In 1968 with Cleveland, he had a 1-6-0 ERA, ludicrous. And in 1972 with the Red Sox, probably the team that he's most uh, known for, he had a 1-9-1 ERA. A great career, a uh, an underrated career, 229 wins, but over 65 wins above replacement on baseball reference. That's right around the Hall of Fame borderline. And uh, obviously one of the most indelible pitching motions of anybody who's ever pitched. Love Louis Tiat. Put him in the Hall of Fame. He's got my vote. Uh, he make that may get revisited too, and you know, on down the road and in the veterans committee. And so certainly it's not over yet for Louis Tiat. But he was the guy I watched when I was 12 years old in the 1975 World Series. I immediately went in the backyard. Turned on the floodlight, and I was Louis T. Not playing wiffle ball in the backyard, and um, that carried over my whole career. And uh, the day I got to meet Louis T. and tell him that and thank him uh, was a highlight uh, because sometimes you meet your heroes, and you know they, they're dismissive or they they don't live up to what what you think you know what you built them up to be. And that's not the case with Louis T. He was great. The day I met him was fantastic. He really appreciated me telling him the story of a twelve-year-old David Cohn who idolized Louis T. And tried to emulate him and threw sidearm sliders. So the day he died, almost, you know, I'm gonna throw sidearm sliders till the day I die, at least, at least in my mind. I certainly did in my career. So Louis Tant, one of my favorites all the time. You know, we could talk about pitchers making adjustments like Robbie Ray with a higher leg kick, the the coil, right? Uh Louis Tiant, no one can hold a candle next to him in terms of coiling back in. And facing second base, literally, you see his numbers from the batter's box, just an an incredible all-time pitching delivery on the mound with with Tion. Awesome. Yes, great, great delivery, great character of the game, too. Personality galore. He he was just, uh, he he checked all the boxes, you know, in in terms of pitching, in terms of character, uh, everything you'd want to, to be a teammate. All right, three up, three down here, guys. Uh, each of us give give three storylines here on Telling the Slab from something that happened around the baseball industry that we kind of believe deserves some attention. And this is how we we closed the show here on Telling the Slab. So uh, Thanksgiving week, again, things n- not exactly quiet as the CBA approaches. There have been some free agency signings, but it could be anything here near and dear to our hearts and, and what we think, again, deserves a little bit more light shed on it. So James... As we wind things down here, three up, three down. You can lead us off as we uh, as we look ahead to what's happening uh, later this week, Thanksgiving holiday. But what events have transpired, and we uh, we want to gain some knowledge here. So so three up, three down. We start with you. All right, I'll lead it off, and uh, a remembrance of Dave Frischberg, who passed away on Wednesday. At age 88, a uh, jazz musician and song and songwriter, uh, he wrote what I think is the best baseball song, Van Lingle Mungo, who was a pitcher for the Dodgers and Giants in the 1930s and 40s. And Frischberg in 1969 wrote a song that has all the lyrics are just the names of ballplayers from when he was a kid in the 40s, 50s and 60s. And the way that he makes it all rhyme and it's all tied around 
Van Lingle Mungo, uh, a great baseball name and a great baseball song. And uh, just uh, honoring uh, Frischberg for his uh, for his career and his and his uh, great baseball song. Are you familiar with this, David? I don't I'm not going to put James on the spot and ask him to kind of recite this. But are you familiar with it? Can he sing it? Can, can we get James Spice <laughs> singing for us here? No. You know, now that he mentions a name, it, it is ringing a bell a little bit. So, but he's got my curiosity uh, peaked right now. Uh, well, you can look it up on YouTube, but I'll have him do it instead because you're not getting me to sing. <laughs> maybe, maybe we can close the show with that instead of our original outro music if we're <laughs> we're not breaking any laws there. But maybe we can. Yeah, we found a theme we song. We got our theme song. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we're not. Look, James, let the record state. I didn't put you on the spot there. David asked you to sing it. So, uh, David, what do you have for us? Three up, three down. Well, I, yeah, I, I wavered on this. I'm going to stay in the same vein and say goodbye uh, to Ed Lucas, a longtime journalist covering the Yankees. Uh, Ed was friends with uh, Scooter. Going back to Scooter, you know, back in the day, Phil Rizzuto had to get a job in the offseason, worked at a clothing store. And that's how Ed Lucas was a big fan, went to meet uh, Scooter. They became friends. Ed Lucas uh, was partially blind, but they had an injury in his childhood where he was hit with a baseball between the eyes and officially made him all the way blind. And so, but he wanted to still cover baseball and he did. And he could tell the difference uh, by the sound of the bat on whether it was a a home run or not, or how well the ball was hit. He could tell if it was a ground ball to shortstop. He did a fantastic job covering the Yankees all those years. Stick Michael was involved with him as well and his foundation, the Ed Lucas for the Blind Foundation. He's done incredible work over the years. I picked up the mantle from Stick, and now my personal golf tournament was with Ed Lucas for his foundation. He's done a lot of good over the years. What a legacy Ed Lucas leaves behind. My sympathy to Allison, his wife, but one of the great all-time characters around the game, around the Yankees, all the way back to Scooter Rizzuto, Ed Lucas passed away, so... Rest in peace, Ed. You left your mark and your legacy will forever be remembered. Atua, I've been I've been very blessed being able to be around like professional baseball since I was in college. Like for my college radio station, we were credentialed reporters, and I'd be going to old Yankee Stadium and Shea Stadium, and there were people there that you just knew were fixtures of each building and there's the New York baseball scene. And whether it was a, a, you know, a terrific game score an official score in, in Bill Shannon or um, someone like Ed Lucas, who was just a mainstay in the press box. And you always, you know, you always saw them, you always saw them doing the work, but you always saw the attention that was right, you know, rightfully given to them and you learn about their stories. And it's just fascinating what, type of life Ed lived in baseball and you you mentioned playing you know he he was hitting between the eyes uh during a a baseball game as a as a child I learned that that game actually took place after the shot heard around the world like Bobby Bobby Thompson hit the home run and then he went outside and played and that's when it unfortunately occurred so just just a you know a fixture around the New York baseball scene and like like you mentioned you know our sympathies go out to uh to ed's family and and just if you want to learn more google his name there is an incredible short form piece on on ed lucas's i think chris Connolly did it for me as being he's a terrific storyteller just fantastic stuff and like you said it goes all the way back to phil rizzuto so 
um, definitely a, a big loss for, for the New York baseball scene, the sport of baseball, and uh, our sympathies go out to the Lucas family. Um, I am going to go in a different direction here, three up, three down. And I saw late last week the, the Oakland A's, you know their stadium situation. The team has put an offer down on a piece of land in Las Vegas for, for a new ballpark if they move out of Oakland. So a lot still needs to happen for them to move out of Oakland, but a lot also needs to happen for them to move to a different city like Las Vegas. But in Oakland, you have the team proposing a place near uh, an area called Howard Terminal. So there's the, the Howard Terminal project that they want. This could be more pressure from them basically telling the city of Oakland, hey, look, we're serious about playing in another city if we need to. We're, we're going past just studying the region, the demographics. We're looking to purchase land now. So there are also probably like a lot of clauses in a deal for a plot of land in Las Vegas, I'm guessing, right? Um, you know, maybe even more with, with a Major League Baseball franchise in the fold here. But if the A's end up buying the land, in my opinion, even if they stay in Oakland, if, they, if they're able to buy that land, you know, yes, it's maybe under A's ownership, so to speak. But in my eyes, it's under baseball ownership. It's in the baseball universe there. So they can hold on to it. Baseball could kind of hold on to it. And I think that if they make that further progress for the land in, in, in Vegas, that it's just uh, – pretty much a foregone conclusion at that point that we're going to see a major league baseball team in Las Vegas, Nevada in the near future. Maybe not the very near future. Maybe it's not completely imminent with the A's, but you're going to have a team playing in Sin City sometime in the next decade. So I thought this was a, a big development here late last week. Makes sense, right? Now they have leverage. Leverage is everything in this game and the major league baseball owners have always used that. If you remember uh, you know, the, the Tropicana Field in Tampa Bay was originally going to be built for the White Sox. The White Sox are going to move to Tampa Bay. Well, 10 years later, it was the race. So certainly uh, this is this is a game that's been played forever in terms of leverage. Hey, if you don't give us what we want, then we're going to move. And uh, it's, that's that's the nature of business. Major League Baseball does business. And uh, that, that's the nature of the game in terms of franchise relocation. So, yes, it's a great point. Uh, keep your eye out on Las Vegas is uh, – when you, you see the success of the Raiders out there, you, you can see that, uh, you know, it, potentially that could happen. Yeah, either relocation. Coney brings up the trop, how it was first for the White Sox, but also the Giants were in play there. And then that's how yeah. they ended up getting the new park uh, in San Francisco there. So you could go at, at either it's a two-pronged thing. It could be relocation or eventually someday we might be, uh, we might be due for expansion to 32 teams. And then that, that could come into play there, too, if, if there isn't a team there already. Yeah, there's a stock answer from Commissioner Manfred whenever he's asked about the, the stadium situation or expansion. Hey, we need the Rays and the A's to figure out their situations first, then we move on to expansion. I just think uh, if, if they make any progress on a plot of land in Vegas, whether it's Major League Baseball itself or they not necessarily use a team, but if – if the A's have that, baseball has it, right? And, and you know, it's just going to be sitting there waiting for another team. So what do you think about Sin? Are you, are you, are you a Vegas guy, Coney? 
Uh, no, yeah, I mean, yes, love <laughs> Vegas, by the way. Yeah, personally, love Vegas. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think when you're, when you're looking at the future of baseball and possibly realignment as well, geographically speaking, you need another team in the West. I think Portland comes into play too. Seattle's kind of up there by themselves. You know, they, they could use a little little company, so to speak. So Portland certainly fits that mode, even, even uh, Las Vegas to a certain extent. So, yeah, you certainly need another team out West, especially if you're going to do a, a separate geographic uh, realignment, which most people believe over the next few years that, that that's in play uh, in terms of the scheduling, in terms of, uh, you know, realignment and maybe even also uh, different divisions. I mean, uh, there, there's a lot of creative ideas out there on how to do it. Maybe the Yankees and the Mets in the same division and an East, East Coast sort of realignment. And then the West Coast realignment where you stay within your, your timeline a little more. You need another team out West. If you're not watching on the YouTube stream here, uh, on the YouTube version of the podcast, Phil David, you were a little caught off guard by that question about Vegas. So I don't know what story lies behind there. That could be for another time here on yes. Telling the Slab. Yes, look at that. Okay, perfect. So we'll wrap it up here. Look, awesome time chatting with Robbie Ray. Big thank you to Robbie, the Cy Young Award winner here in the American League in 2021. Best of luck to him. Thank you to our uh, our producer extraordinaire, Dan Work, David, James. Happy Thanksgiving, my friends. And uh, we'll we'll talk soon. Happy Thanksgiving. Yep. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes. Happy Thanksgiving to you all out there listening here to Tone the Slab, pitching with David Cohn. We'll talk to you soon. Take care.